How do we find music we like? It's a simple question with many different answers. Some go to internet playlists, others comb through old collections at record stores, and still others talk with people and share their favorite music and memories. I wanted to have fun and learn new music in a creative way that let me connect with people from all different musical backgrounds. Join me and step outside your musical comfort zone. I'm Justin Machine, and this is the Album Machine Podcast. As 2020 progresses into midsummer, many of us are still, even now, trying to adjust to a new normal. These warmer months often represent carefree ventures, sipping of our favorite cocktails, and basking in endless rays of sunshine. While these options in 2020 may have an asterisk next to their enjoyability due to a global pandemic, one activity certainly does not, and that's listening to a new Heim album, seemingly crafted for a summer many of us pine for. Heim is a band consisting of three sisters, Danielle, Este, and Alana, all skilled musicians in their own right. They have a rich background in music that started from a young age and was heavily influenced by both parents. Their father was a pro soccer player in Israel and also smashed on the drums, while their mother won a game show contest in the 1970s with her singing abilities. The three Heim sisters officially became a band in the year 2007, though none of them really considered it a professional way forward. More of a fun project to work on. Some of the first shows they played were located in small delis in Los Angeles. The album art on Women in Music Part 3 just happens to look as though it depicts the three sisters in a deli, a possible ode to their earlier days. The band started picking up steam in the early 2010s and toured with bands like Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, along with Mumford & Sons. They released an EP titled Forever in the year 2012 and had a star-making performance that same year at South by Southwest. Success followed as they dropped their debut album Days Are Gone in the year 2013 and subsequently won the Grammy for Best New Artist at the 57th Annual Grammys. The band's insanely catchy hooks, relatable songwriting, hip-hop-infused beats, and ruckus live shows won the fans the world over as they toured heavily for the next few years. Women in Music Part 3 was their new album that was released on June 26 and distributed by Columbia Records. The original release date was formally April 24th, but much like everything else in the music industry and beyond, the drop date was postponed. Women in Music Part 3 was produced by Danielle with help from former Vampire Weekender Rostam Batmanjli and Ariel Reichsted. It's a bit of a departure for Haim. They wanted to experiment more, be spontaneous, and have fun. While the complete record accomplishes this in droves, some of the songwriting covers very serious and sometimes personal material. It seems as though each one of the sisters was overcoming a hardship, pushing through tragedy, and dealing with inner demons while expertly weaving in social commentary as well. The album starts off with a super sexy saxophone solo and tight drums on Los Angeles. This is in the running for my favorite track on the album. As of this recording, I still haven't picked a favorite song, though the trio describe Los Angeles in a way that someone describes an ex they grew out of. It used to be so great, but it's not what it used to be. It's not their same home. Set against the backdrop of a sunny guitar rhythm that screams sun in Southern California, interwoven amongst distant pianos that bring palm trees and a bottomless blue sky to mind, I instantly want to put my shades on and kick back to this song. The next song of note that caught my attention was Up From A Dream, like the title may suggest, the song starts with a misleading yawn. 
misleading because this may very well be the most powerful song in the album and has a great experimental guitar and Estee's booming bass grooves can be heard supporting underneath. This song is about not wanting to deal with the reality and maybe staying in bed is safer. Despite this, one can easily see jumping up and down on this track at a cramped venue in the future. You know, when concerts are again possible. Perhaps the most relatable song on the album. Most can guess that the track 3AM is indeed about a booty call. The track starts off with a great ploy. A man's voice stumbles out on a voicemail, seeing if the receiver is, quote, up. At one time or another, all of us have most likely received that text or call. We should say no, but we still go because, hey, we're human. The song plays out like a funky trance, recalling songs of the past like Fly Like an Eagle. The song's lyrics promise this will be the last time to pick up, suggesting the all-too-familiar promise of self-control and self-worth. The next track I checked out was called Man from the Magazine, and it describes the struggle of being a female musician. Walking into a music shop only to be told about beginner guitars, or guitars that your boyfriend would like, by the store clerk. This one fits right in with the band's attitude. The sisters reject the idea of being a quote girl band and prefer to be just a band, being respected for their merits as musicians. Estee noted how their live show annex, particularly the faces she makes at shows, seem to be off-putting to some people. While men do the same are regarded as great performers or quote into it, is yet another example of how women are both treated and what's expected of them in the music industry. The song does a great job covering both of those aspects. Leaning on You has the three Heim sisters perform their three-part harmony vocals flawlessly over a stripped-down instrumental of twangy acoustic guitars. To some, it may scream Fleetwood Mac, but for one reason or another, I kept going back to Indigo Girls, probably because the harmonized vocals. Either way, it's impressive to see the range of this band. The album ends with what could be described as a country gospel song. Hallelujah describes how important family is and how no matter what, you will always have someone in your corner. Throughout the years, there's no doubt that this trio has experienced plenty of hardship, adversity, and struggle. It must be comforting to know that they have each other through all of this. As 2020 still goes on, and we may not be able to go to concerts, bars, or sporting events, we can still soak up the rays, enjoy our favorite cocktails, and listen to this wonderful album, even if it means putting a mask on. Go check out Women in Music Part 3 today on your favorite streaming service, or wherever you buy records. I'll go ahead and take a short break, but up next we have Sebastian Forbush of the Buddy Holly Center in Lubbock, Texas. Have you ever thought about podcasting, but aren't sure where to start? There's an easy way with Anchor. Anchor is a podcast hosting platform that has been optimized for smartphones. You can record, build episodes, and post your content all in one place, right from your phone. Anchor also supplies listener metrics and lets you monetize your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Start your podcasting journey today at Anchor. I'm honored to be joined by our guest today. He's the curator of the Buddy Holly Center in Lubbock, Texas. Sebastian Forbush, 
Thanks for joining us today on the Album Machine Podcast. How you doing? Pretty good. Yourself? Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you calling today. And uh, before we talk about the self-titled album by Buddy Holly, I was just curious to know what it takes to become a curator of rock and roll history. It sounds really interesting. It's kind of a uh, kind of a crazy path that I went on because uh, I didn't. I so I went into college not really knowing what I wanted to do, and I had a uh, professor. Uh, Dr. Corey Conover over uh, in South Dakota, where uh, where I was at school, and he recommended that I take a uh, museum class after uh, after I talked to him about maybe being interested in history, and I fell in love with uh, with museums ever since. Um, I was working at uh, the Center for Western Studies, which was sort of the, the on campus museum there, and got an internship there, and uh, I liked it, and so they kept me on uh, until I graduated, and then from there. I went to San Francisco 49ers Museum. I was a museum educator there and then uh, came down to the Buddy Holly Center after that and uh, worked for a few years as the uh, education coordinator there or here. And then uh, just recently back in September, I uh, got promoted to curator. So it's been sort of a crazy path uh, that I went on. And I wasn't necessarily looking to uh, be a rock and roll curator from the outset. But, uh, you know, after I moved on from uh, from the 49ers, I really I really enjoyed, you know, what I what I had learned uh, here at the Buddy Holly Center. And so uh, when the job opened up, I figured I'd throw my hat in the ring and just sort of got lucky. That's really neat. So you've you've been around the block a little bit with uh, museums. What how did the Buddy Holly, Buddy Holly Center come up? You know, I was uh, I was just looking for a job in museums at the time I was working for the uh, San Francisco 49ers. And just sort of, uh, sort of felt like it was it was time for a change, and so uh, I was just sort of scouring uh, any jobs far and wide that that I could find. You know, I applied for a job up in uh, like Detroit. I applied for one in Vancouver, and then uh, this job in Lubbock pop- popped up, and I I figured I was like, you know, hey, well, you know, I've, I've never even heard of this town before, but uh, you know, I might as well give it a shot, and that, that's the job I ended up getting. <laughs> that's hilarious it's lubbock is out there man <laughs> yeah you know they call it the, they call it the hub city and uh and i was like yeah you know it is it is the the hub because i mean really there's there's nothing within you know four or five hours of lubbock and so uh you know we do get so many really cool things and especially music uh music artists not just because of uh you know buddy holly but because you know there isn't uh really that hub uh outside of lubbock you know for for a few hours and so there's so many so many great people that get to come here uh, and and do stuff here in Lubbock, uh, and we're I know I'm really thankful for that uh, because it makes uh, my job way more interesting. Did you know anything about Buddy Holly prior to this posting, or or not really? I did a little bit. My uh, my parents were were big fans of like 50s and 60s rock and roll, and so I'd heard uh, I'd heard his big hits, but uh, nothing really outside of that. Uh, when they when they called and interviewed me for the job. Uh, I, I did a ton of research, you know, prior to the interview, just, uh, just because I wanted to be prepared. And then, uh, like I said, it served me well. And, uh, I actually found out that a few things that, uh, that I'd researched were, uh, were incorrect. And so, uh, they were like, yeah, people think that, but that's not actually the case. And I was like, oh, okay, well that's good to know. And, you know, now I can educate other people with that too. Oh, crazy. What, what was some of the information that you learned that was incorrect? 
oh, people online that, uh, you know, had said, said all kinds of crazy stuff, like, uh, you know, Buddy was married to Peggy Sue beforehand, and, uh, and that's why he wrote the song, and that's, that's not true at all. He, uh, he actually wrote it for his niece, he, uh, whose name was Cindy Lou, and uh, his drummer, Jerry Allison, was dating Peggy Sue Guerin at the time and asked him to change it or change the name of the title of the song uh, so that he could, you know, you know, it could be for her. And so uh, there was a lot of crazy misinformation that uh, that was going on. But that was uh, that was one of the big things that I remember. I remember reading and then finding out later was false. Almost like a, a lore or a, or a tall tale. And then it and then it's broken. <laughs> yeah, you know, there, there are so many people that we get that come through here that so many people have had interactions with Buddy or his family because, you know, he passed away 60 years ago, but really it was still recent enough to a lot of, to where a lot of people, you know, either had parents that went to school with him or a, you know, or they, they knew a sibling or, you know, something like that. And so there's so many, you know, being a part of history that, you know, things sort of get altered. Yeah, if you think about it, there, you know, there are still a lot of people who are probably alive back then, and it actually wasn't that long ago. So, it's kind of kind of crazy how that works sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we get we get a ton of people through the museum that you know love to tell us about about their stories about you know about Buddy or knowing Buddy or you know having heard him, and it's it's always fascinating for us to hear because sometimes they they contradict what we sort of know to be true, but you know it is that that extra perspective and you know you know sort of that living history component of it yeah it's always good to hear different sides of a story or or different perspectives that's that's neat let's get into the actual self-titled album how much have you listened to it you said you did a lot of research prior to your job and i'm sure you've listened to it since then but how much have you listened to it we have the, the complete collection of Buddy Holly songs that sort of plays through our galleries the entire time that we're open. So, you know, I've heard, I've heard the whole album, you know, quite a few times. I've, I've really sat down and listened to it. Uh, you know, I listened to it before I got hired, and then I listened to it. Tried to do it, you know, every couple of months while I was here because, you know, you're always picking up on new things. And they, they encouraged us to read and become, uh, become educated really about, you know, what we were teaching and what we were learning. So I did like to find out something new or read a read a new article or something like that and then you know go back and listen to some of the some of the albums that that they had but up until the point that you texted me I realized that it had been probably about a full year since I'd since I'd really done a deep dive into uh into the album again and so I was like you know that's a it's a temper temper brush up <laughs> yeah I'd only heard of every day that was my first introduction to Buddy Holly and then I didn't even realize it was on this album. I, I was kind of just researching albums to listen to, and the reviews and and the critics and were experts were saying that this was kind of the quintessential album you should probably listen to. I I've only heard it recently all the way through, and it's got some really interesting songs on it and styles. Right. And I wanted to know what your take on some of the you know the direction of the album and the nature of some of the songs and how the album kind of plays out as a whole. You have so many sort of different, I don't want to say conflicting because I do, I do feel like they all sort of, they do blend together in the, in the way that he put them on there. But I mean, a lot of different sort of types of music, you know, you have, uh, you know, a little bit of the crooning going on. You have a few covers, Ready Teddy on there where, uh, you know, they're, they're much more almost bop songs. And then you've got, you've got every day, 
which he sort of splits the difference. And so, you know, I think that at that point in his career, because, uh, you know, this was released in sort of later 1958, and at this point he was he was really starting to branch out that, the type of music that he wanted to do. Early on in his career when he was playing with Bob Montgomery, he, you know, they played a lot of country music because not only were they playing K-Dave, which was one of the first, like, all-country radio stations, but he was also, that's the type of music that Bob Montgomery liked playing and eventually made a career out of. But, you know, Buddy didn't ever want to be painted into one type of music. And there's an interview that he had with uh, Red Robinson in 1957. Red Robinson was a huge Canadian DJ up, uh, back in the day. Still actually puts out some stuff if you're interested in listening to, to his take on some uh, some older music. It's, it's really interesting. But he did an interview with Red Robinson and was talking about how he didn't actually like playing rock and roll that much. And in 1957, gave rock and roll about six months to live before uh, the whole country would move on to something else. Wow. So, you know, he was, you know, for, for somebody that, you know, sort of almost defined what early rock and roll was, he was he was already ready to move on in 1957, which was, I don't know, the first time I heard it, I just, I thought it was the funniest thing ever because he did like, um, you know, the slower songs. He liked to, you know, really think about his music and wasn't so much about sort of bringing the house down with uh, with rock. That's so interesting I to imagine that he could have branched off into something completely different had he still been alive. That's fascinating. After he married Marie Elena and they moved to Greenwich Village, he was, I mean, he was looking at a bunch of different types of music, even like flamenco music, and sort of trying to bring aspects of different types of music that he had experienced in all into, so all under one umbrella. And, you know, it was always his dream to uh, become a producer and, you know, sort of come back to Lubbock and become that sort of West Texas producer for, for all these kids that he saw that didn't really have the exposure he wanted to to bring that to them and i think that even more so than uh, as an artist you know if he had lived i think his impact would have been extremely widespread uh, because of what he wanted to give back to music i read quite a bit about a lot of the inspiration of musicians coming out of lubbock today and, and in the past and not just musicians but really everybody buddy holly kind of grew up in Lubbock and, and came on to be this very successful person and really inspired the generations after, I think, to, you know, hey, just because I'm from a small town in West Texas doesn't mean, you know, I can't do all, all these great things. Right. So you said that this album was released in later 1958. Would this make the self-titled album kind of the last album while he was alive that he released? There was one album that he uh, released afterwards. It was titled That'll Be the Day. So that was released in April of 58. I think this one was uh, was released in in February of 1958. So I'm sorry, I wasn't. it wasn't entirely later 1958, but he did, uh, he sort of played a lot of these songs a little bit later in his career as well. But yeah, he, he had one, one more that was released after this. I gotcha. Last year, the Buddy Holiday Center did an event on the anniversary of the plane crash, the day the music died event. Does the Buddy Holly Center do stuff like this quite often, every like every year? Or is this kind of just a rare event? The two big events that we have every year in sort of remembrance of Buddy 
are his birthday bash, which is September 7th, and the day the music died, which is uh, you know, held every February 3rd. So last year's 20, uh, 2019 was the 60th anniversary of his death, so it was a little bit bigger than what we normally put on, but we do have an event every year. I wanted to talk about the covers. Uh, you mentioned Ready Teddy earlier and how that was kind of more of a, a bop song, and I found it to be one of the more aggressive songs on the record. Can you describe a little bit more about the artists that you know, originally performed those songs that Buddy Holly covered? And was this something that happened quite often back then? Buddy recorded uh, or played covers of, of quite a few songs. And even some of the original songs he didn't write, he got, uh, he got them from, whether it was from Jerry Allison or you know, working with Norman Petty. There was quite a few collaboration that went on uh, back then, especially here in West Texas, because there were so many artists that always that sort of ended up playing together. So no, it wasn't it wasn't uncommon at all for people to just sort of cross over. And you know, as for whether it was more of a, a jazz song or a bop song or even like a gospel song, Buddy Buddy did have you know sort of an extensive taste uh, in music. Yeah, like you were mentioning earlier, just the, even the the country. That surprised me a lot. <laughs> Is there a favorite song of this album that you love to listen to over and over again and you always kind of come back to? This album, I really like Baby, I Don't Care. That's, that's one of my favorites. But overall, my, I think my favorite Buddy Holly song is probably Midnight Shift. That one always, always just puts a smile on my face. It, I don't know. It's, for some reason, it's, it's one of my favorite songs uh, that, that he recorded. Yeah, it's a good one. I I do like the entire album. It brings a smile to your face when you listen to it, and I I, I enjoy that a lot. Even when Buddy Buddy covered it, you know, it was it was always in his own style. It wasn't ever you know, he wasn't ever trying to be another artist. He was taking what they had done and he was you know putting his own spin on it, which was kind of fun. You know, the first song that he uh, that he recorded was "My Two Time and Woman," which was a Hank Snow song. And so he recorded that in 1949. So you know, 10 years before uh, before he passed away, when he was 12 years old, oh my he gosh. was uh, he was recording that song. And so you know, it was it was really you know so you know the, the music was just you know, such a part of his life. Uh, you know, early on from when his his mother introduced him to it, took his own path and sort of really soared with it. He certainly did. Last question for you today, and thanks again for joining us here at the Album Machine Podcast, what is something that you think everyone should know about Buddy Holly? I think that one of the, the biggest things that, that kind of gets kind of gets overlooked, but, you know, really set the stage for the next 40 years of music was the, the four-piece band. You know, the, the vocals, the, the bass, the drums, and the, uh, the guitar. That foursome was really one of the first things that, that, you know, Buddy and his band really, really did together was, you know, sort of create that sound. And then, you know, it became a staple for so many bands in the future, all the way, you know, from Aerosmith to the Beatles, that, that four-person four band. And so everyone sort of has their, their take on it, but, you know, that became really the, the base of rock and roll. And you can add and track a little bit, you know, as, as you will, but, you know, those, those core people are really the fundamentals, uh, you know, in that, that started with, uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Yeah. I just, I look at 
all of every time I read about Buddy Holly, it's all about the influences. I mean, band after band after band say that Buddy Holly was an influence of theirs. One of the most funny telling quotes also is, you know, John Lennon saying, you know, I was Buddy Holly. And the Beatles, they said, like, you know, their first two albums were uh, fully inspired by Buddy Holly. You know, the Rolling Stones did the same thing. I uh, got the Hullabaloo's, the Searchers, you know, so many, so many bands got their start because they, they listened to him. And then he, so he, it wasn't just the music he played and what, what he put out, but it was really the, the effect that he had on so many other musicians and, you know, what they strive to be. I heard that he was pretty influential in the UK because uh, unlike certain artists of that time, he, he went there quite a bit, did he not? He was one of the first, or the Crickets were one of the first American bands to, to travel overseas. So they went to both Australia and the UK. When he, uh, yeah, he signed on to uh, to a few tours over there, and then they also signed on with Alan Reed and doing uh, doing the show Stars and all that. For being from a small town in Texas, you know, they they really branched out with you know what they what they thought that they could do, and obviously accomplished it. Yeah, it's. Again, just fascinating and and great to hear that somebody from Lubbock, Texas, became a world phenomenon and such an influence around rock and roll, but also other types of music as well. Definitely, yeah. Well, Sebastian, I thank you for your time today, and thanks for giving the Album Machine podcast a shot. And enjoy the rest of your day, sir. No problem. You have a you have a good day, and uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot. You take care now. You too. The Album Machine Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Justin Machine, and is recorded in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening today. And don't forget, try out a new song and step outside your musical comfort zone.